0: Welcome to Revolution 22, a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we learn from God's Word in Habakkuk. We pray that His Word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Thank you for joining us. Um, it was about last spring when we decided to make the next shift or change into this book that we're going into. We we as pastors had prayed about it and really thought about what would make the next sense to kind of go to after 1 Corinthians. And so we are, we are jumping into the book of Habakkuk, and we are excited about it. And the reason why we kind of made the decision to make this jump is about last spring, again, last spring over summer, we, we kept hearing over and over and over again this question, kind of, kind of how could a good God allow such bad things to happen. How could how could my God, the God I believe in, allow this to happen to me? And we kept hearing this question over and over. And, and not just from people that weren't believers, but from people that claimed the name of Christ. And so no matter how long you are a Christian, no matter what, no matter how long you are a Christian, I am positive that you have, just at one point like I have, asked the question, how can this happen? How can you be doing this? See, on every Christian's journey to maturity in Christ, you will be faced with questions of God like this. Like, what in the world are you doing, God? What's what's going on? How, how can you be doing this? And this question could be based entirely emotionally. You you are experiencing hardship or, or sadness or or there's things in your life that are going on that just The draw out emotions. Look, when something happens to you, it's it's just natural to be angry or sad or or to to, to potentially get into depression. And these are emotions that that are enticed and, and brought up by this very question. God, how could you do this? How could you allow this to happen? The other question can be based on facts. You look at your circumstances. You look at what you know of God, what you think you know of God, what you see in his scriptures of his definition. And you look at your landscape of your life and you go, look what's happening look it, I see this happening. I'm sure many of you have asked this question over the last few months. God, if you're so good, how in the world can this be happening? How come we're stuck in our home? How come we're not gathering in person? If you're so good, these are questions that we ask based both on emotions and on facts. And sometimes both. We see both. But at the end of the day, here's, here's the issue. The facts that we have, It's 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 pretty safe to say that we don't have all the facts. No matter what, no matter how smart you are, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how much studying you do, you're still always going to be missing some of the facts. And when it comes to our emotions, no matter how hard we go forward with it, we can't really truly depend on our emotions not being tainted at all by triggers or past pains or, or potentially um, aided by some expectation we may have had. See, so at the end of the day, it's really hard to trust either facts or emotions. And when we see all this difficulty coming, we're like, what in the world is going on? One of the main reasons we ask these questions of God is based on our understanding of timelines. We think it's been going on for so long, and it may have been years. Or maybe it's just longer than we expected it should have taken. We thought we would have had this figured out by a week or two weeks, whatever situation you're in. And either way, we, we, we come to this emotionally, we come to this with facts, and, and we wrestle with God at the, at the deepest level of how can a good God allow these bad things to happen? All the while, if you're a follower of Christ, you have to remember scriptures like this in Psalms, where it says, Psalms 107, 107 verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures. Or similar to that one, Psalm 105. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. We we are faced with that question. God is good. But then how come our circumstances seem like he's not? And as we prayed about what book to go to, we decided it was probably best that we go to Habakkuk because we didn't want to spend a decade going through this in Job. So that's why we're in Habakkuk today. We want to answer these questions. We want to work through the understanding of what, how do we reconcile what we see based on facts or emotions, what we see in our circumstances, to the fact that God is good. And, and my hope would be is over the next 8 to 10 weeks that you guys would, you guys would wrestle with the Lord in a healthy way that you would see that it's okay to come to him with these questions. There's so many brilliant things that God is going to teach us through this book. I'm so, so excited. To get this kind of set up better today, instead of digging into Habakkuk today, we're going to actually just kind of give us the timeline of history that sets, kind of sets the motion or sets the landscape of when this book was written. See, it's incredibly important for us to understand the author for context and the timeline for context, but also, I think if you look at it, the questions that Habakkuk asks God, let me just say it right now, they're offensive. The way that he communicates to God is almost—it's—it's—it's it's, it's almost offensive in the way he's—he's—he's he's, he's just real and raw. We'll talk more about that next week, but—but but for us to understand it, if we don't know where this sits in history, if we aren't aware of how this lays in the kind of the landscape of what God has been doing in history, it kind of seems like Habakkuk's an entitled whiny punk. That's—that's that's really what it would come across if we don't understand what's going on. And so, real quickly, if you want, you can just kind of. You can kind of of hunker in. We're going to do a little bit of a history lesson. It's a lot of information. I'm going to try and cover about thousand fifteen hundred 1,500 years in the next 5 to 10 minutes, hopefully. Um, Who are we kidding? We know it'll probably be 15, but you guys aren't here to to tell me you're falling asleep, so you have to deal with it. Um, Real quickly, the name Habakkuk. We don't know a lot about this author. We know that he is a prophet because it's defined that way. We know that... um, he was a contemporary to Nahum, uh, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah, so he lived around the same time as them. H- his his name is what really kind of throws us for a little bit of loop. A lot of historians are struggling with the fact that his name isn't just a true Hebrew word. It actually has kind of some Akkadian words to it or Akkadian twist to it or, or in place. And so because of it, like kind of with the infixed nasal points and a Hebrew word and a cognate with an Akkadian word, we get this word that kind of, meant garden plant in Akkadian to call Habakkuk. And so it's this weird name that we don't necessarily know. So if you argue about how to pronounce it, if you say Habakkuk or Habakkuk, have fun with it because no one really knows. Um, but one of the things that we, most scholars have been led to see is because of the fact that there is a bit of an Akkadian root to his his name. It's interesting because Akkadian is, is, is is kind of Greek, Mesopotamian Greek. And so it shows that there may have been a little bit more influence of the Greeks in, into Israel earlier on than we expected. And that's, that's just fun to know. But around this, uh, Luther and a number of other scholars, when you take kind of his name and you come with the, the closest Hebrew word we have, it really is to embrace. And so a lot of ways, like, they, they've kind of taken his name to mean the embracer, which I love because if you think about where he's, he's wrestling with God, he embraces God at the end. Uh, we don't know his what he does. We know he's a—he's a—he's a—, a, tie, he's a, he's a prophet some speculation about him being a temple prophet but there's really no real understanding of that that's based on him doing the psalm in chapter three and so so that's kind of really all we know about this man we do know this and one scholar says of this i love this is that is that habakkuk loved god but he was prepared as few others would be to engage him in a probing dialogue about the rightness of his actions Most believers, of course, encounter time in their spiritual life when they doubt or question God. Few, however, as Job did, openly debate the issues. Even rarer is an individual who will stand before God and confront him with the apparent anomalies in his actions towards mankind. This is what Habakkuk does. This is what the prophet Habakkuk did, even going a step beyond this to challenging God on the response which he gives to Habakkuk's initial question. Guys, the posture with which Habakkuk comes to God is one that we really need to pay attention to, and we'll talk a lot about that in the coming weeks. Now, a little bit of understanding of why Habakkuk could come so feisty to God. Why, why would he come so feisty to God is because of the timeline in place. Now, we know kind of Old Testament scripture we build up, and in about 2081, God has this covenant with Abram. He says to him, look, I will make you a descendant of, I will make you one of many descendants. I will make you a a people group. He kind of promises this Israel nation to them and says, this is going to happen. You are going to be God's chosen people and and it's going to be amazing. And then about a thousand years of working that out over and over again where it doesn't really happen. They they end up in slavery and they only to wander the promised land for uh, for an entire generation to pass off. And then into the, uh, and then, into the promised land where it's violence after violence after violence. 1,000 years, 1,038 years plus, they, people plead for God to give them a king, and so he gives them Saul. And Saul becomes the king in 1,043 B.C. And he, he gives them the king at their demand. And honestly, guys, for what it's worth, Saul is incredibly disappointing. He's a, he's, it's, it, everything that Saul does really just goes horribly wrong. And these people for a thousand years have been, after the Exodus have been saying, we're going to be in this place where we're going to be able to follow the Lord and we're going we're to be his people. We're going to have our own promised land. And then they get Saul and it goes horribly wrong. And about 40 years after Saul's reign, David steps up. And what we love about David and what all of us love about David is the Bible's clear. It's, it describes David as a man after God's own heart. Which is really important for us to understand because David, you know, uh, had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed Bathsheba's husband. So he's not exactly made the most amazing choices, but yet God still calls him a man after God's own hearts. He has incredible character flaws, incredible character flaws. But this is why we are drawn to the Psalms. Because in one page you see David going, oh Lord I love you. I couldn't imagine you being any closer. And then the next page you see, how long will you forsake me? I wonder if David looks back at his writings and is a little embarrassed by kind of his journal of Psalms in, in, the, in the flipping back and forth. But we, we are drawn to him because of the fact that we see him, him kind of making sense of what we wrestle with. And David reigns and it's honestly, David's reign is just bloody. He It's war after war after war of David just kind of constantly bloodshed happening, constantly at war with the Philistines and the other nations around there. And he's a fighter, and he's a leader, and he's a worshiper. And when he's finally slowing down a little bit, when it's finally slowing down, it's kind of near the end of his reign, there's not as much violence anymore. He's starting, to, he's starting to kind of slow down a little bit. He realizes he has this moment, which is it's just a beautiful thing for David. He says, look, I have this beautiful palace, and God is in, in a tent. And so he, he asks God, he says, God, can I, can I build you a dwelling place, a place where, where all of your people can come and worship you, a, a, a place that's only worthy of you? And God says, no says, sorry, there's too much bloodshed on your hands. Even though that's bloodshed I commanded you to do, there's too much there. I'm going to have your son Solomon do it. And so, so about 36 years after David's reign in Israel, Solomon becomes king in 967. And so Solomon's reign and rules, and he builds the temple based on some of the supplies that David was able to gather. That's one thing God did let him do. He said, hey, go ahead and gather the supplies and gold. And it's just a beautifully ornate thing. And Solomon builds this temple, builds a, 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 a dwelling place for God. Finally, what what the people of Israel, what the, what the people of God have been been told by their leaders over and over again, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. You're gonna be a people. You're going to be a nation. You're going to be my people. They finally have it under Solomon's reign. Solomon is, he builds this beautiful temple. It's gorgeous and, and people can come and worship him centered on this spot at this point and it's just, it's profound, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Everything is seeming to work itself out. They are at peace. The economy is flourishing and good things are happening and this is what they've been waiting for for a thousand years finally god's chosen people ruled by god's chosen people at peace having a kingdom having an israel at like everything there it seems like the promise the covenant made before abraham finally comes to fruition and it takes it takes all kinds of years to go through this and 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 about 36 years later solomon dies but before before we get there the thing we have to see is that if you look at Ecclesiastes at the end of kind of Solomon's life, you kind of see that there's some clouds on the horizon, right? And I think it's because he sees kind of who's behind him. He sees his sons. He sees where his reign is going and all the wisdom he has. He was, there was no one smarter than him. So maybe he saw what was coming, but he, he reigns in this place and he realizes that, man, no matter what I do, no matter how good it is, it's, it's just all vanity and it's all going away. And there's kind of clouds. And that's, it's, it's unbelievable what happens with the people of Israel. Solomon dies 36 years after he takes the throne. Solomon dies in 931. And, and his sons get together and they start fighting. They start fighting about who gets to be what. And in the same year that Solomon dies, almost right away, not long after Solomon dies, they divide Israel. They have You have the northern two tribes that are Israel and the, and the southern ten tribes that become Judah. And and it takes like a few years, like three, four years, and the northern tribes are gone. They're just swallowed up by Babylon, and they're in place and left kind of Judah on its own. And now we have this, this, this place where uh, the, the temple starts falling apart. If you look through the next hundred years of history here, this is where you get basically— Horrible king after horrible king after horrible king. You get some scripture about Elijah and some of those other things happening on. Every now and then, like, Asa has a bright spot, and then Joash has another bright spot. But every time one of the kings has a bright spot where they do well, and the scripture's like, yeah, he did. He reigned well right after, it's almost like it's worse than it was before that happened. And so the, Solomon's temple is getting dilapidated, and it's falling apart. And about 216 years after Solomon dies, Hezekiah comes in. Two hundred and sixteen years of them kind of just on this perpetual cycle of a king doing okay for a few years and then it falling apart and being undone and, and, and all this horrible false idols brought into the temple and all kinds of different things and them, them them turning their hearts to idolatry and just making a mess of things. Hezekiah does pretty good. He he reigns about twenty eight years and he he does well in Judah. He there's still occupied. They're still overrun. They're still ran by other countries around them, other, other powers behind, beyond them. But as far as, as far as Judah goes, Hezekiah does what honors God. He makes some mistakes in there, of course, but, but goes through. And then Hezekiah dies. And in 687, about 20, 28 years after Hezekiah's reign, Manasseh steps in. And Manasseh is horrible. He's horrible. Like, he is so wicked. He puts up false idols everywhere. They start they start getting mixed in with other people groups and God, their gods and start worshiping these gods in the temple. And the temple the, that Solomon built at this point is becoming dilapidated and beat up and, and torn and, like, just a mess and kind of not used well. There's there's worships to Baal and all other kind of gods in them at this point. And it's just a mess. And Manasseh just systematically takes the people of Judah, the Israelites, God's chosen people, and just drives them into, a ground, into the ground away from the rule of God away from submission to God, and it's just ugly, 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 ugly. Manasseh rules for about forty-five years. He's built other temples. He's he's blatantly idolatrous. Like I said, it's it's just it's horrible, and everything that he's done. Then his son <laughs> Ammon, Ammon rules for two years, and he basically repeats everything that Manasseh does. He does he does the same things that he does. Kind of goes crazy in this way, and everything's in place. And and. Basically, then Amon dies 47 years after uh, Manasseh set in place, Josiah reigns at 640. And Josiah reigns at the age of eight. Now, I don't I don't know if you know a lot of eight-year-olds, but I, I think we should just pause for a moment and think about what a country run by an eight-year-old would look like. It'd probably be a lot of fun for a while, but like if it's anything like my nine-year-old who was eight last year that definitely wouldn't be organized by any way, shape, or form because she doesn't know how to keep her room clean. But um, he reigns, and what's profound, we don't know about what happens with Josiah, but about 640, about eight years in, about age 16, something radical happens to Josiah. And, and some believe because Jeremiah at this point is starting to set out some of the prophecies, so maybe it's a help of what he's hearing from Jeremiah and his seeking of God's word, but, but a total transformation happens to Josiah and he doesn't follow suit to his, his father or his grandfather, and he decides to start reforming everything. And so what he does is he, he's like, you know what, we need, to get that, we need to get Solomon's temple back up in shape. And so he sends people to go down and start cleaning up and restoring Solomon's temple. And so they're down there cleaning it up, and they, the high priest, and they come across this scroll. And the scroll, in the scroll, mo, all, all scholars believe that the scroll is, is the Pentateuch, or it's the Torah. It's the first five books of Scripture, the Genesis to Deuteronomy. And, and they, they read it to Josiah, and he weeps. He's broken. He's broken over the fact of the, of the, of the way that they are living. He's broken because, because the law has been designed to show us all our shortcomings and failures when it comes to being perfect, as God has called us to be perfect. And Josiah weeps. He brings everyone together and they read the scrolls, they read the Pentateuch, the Torah to all of the people. And all of the people are devastated. Just devastated. And massive reform happens. This can only be the only the best way to describe this kind of like an Old Testament revival. This is incredible what happens. Every single person in all of Judah reforms and comes back to God. Now, just, just for a moment, I want you to kind of think about what that would be like for us today. What happened in Josiah's day here, after years of this horrible cycle over and over again, what happens in that day is like our government, every single leader realizing, going, oh my goodness, we have fallen short of God's glory, we're in sin, and turning and repenting and falling before the Lord. That's what happens in in Judah. Every single person, all the powers come together. And in in about 18 years of of his rule, 622, he takes a Passover, he does a Passover meal. And in 2 Chronicles 35, 18, it says, No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. So this Passover is amazing. It's huge. All the people are turning back to God. He's obliterated all the false idols. He's torn them all down. He's, He's cleaned up the temple. Josiah, at age 16, starts really leading the people of God back to the way they're supposed to be. He turns them in place and everything's going okay. Now, what we have to know is that in Josiah's time period, there are basically three major powers that are at play, and Judah is not one of them. Okay, there's the Assyrians who are kind of up top, they're in place, they've got everything in place, and they're kind of running things. They're, they're the king of the hill, but they're kind of they're declining rapidly. Okay? And then we have the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, as we see here in this scripture in Habakkuk. And they're on the rise, but the thing about the Chaldeans, guys, and we gotta—I don't think we even have a modern-day understanding of them—they are super brutal. Like, horrifically brutal. They are nasty people. They are just—I mean, they are just ferocious. There is no mercy to them. To anyone that they they walk with, they are just—they are just a violent, gruesome, horrible—like, this would be kind of movie that you would, like— almost couldn't stomach watching the way that the Babylonians or the Chaldeans operated in this time. They were a horrible, horrible people and they wanted to rule everything and they were on aggressive rise. And then you have Egypt and Egypt was at this time uh, on decline as well. They were a power but they're on decline as well. And Judah's kind of set in the middle of all three of those, mass- those massive powers. And what's happening is, is they're all—Judah's in the middle of this, and, and Babylon's kind of making its play to take over, which causes Egypt and Assyria to kind of decide to align in hopes that they can support and keep them there. Really, Egypt's kind of covering their own skin. They want Assyria to stay strong because they want a buffer between them and the Babylonians. And, and so what happens is King Necho the second, he decides that he's going to go up to the Assyrians to do something. I, I don't know if he's just establishing. We don't know necessarily what's happening. But he asked Josiah, King Josiah, who has spent all these wonderful years reforming Israel and reforming the people of God, doing all these beautiful things. He says, hey, we need to pass through your area. Will you let us pass through? And Josiah ignores him and goes out to meet him. And this is where the Battle of Megiddo happens. And Josiah goes out and meets him, and even even the king, even King Necho says, "Look, the Lord has told me. You can go read this. The Lord has told me that I have nothing against you. That I'm supposed to go here. Like, don't don't do it." And and Josiah, the king of reformer, all those different things, he's like, "Nope, you can't do it." And he goes out to war, and he gets killed in this war. That's in 609. Josiah is killed in the battle of Megiddo, and and we honestly, Jude. Judah was small and insignificant and stuck in the middle of this, and Josiah getting killed could not have been a more disastrous step for the people of Judah. Josiah gets killed, and he's 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 taken away, and his son comes up. His son takes place. Uh, it's, it's Jehoaz. It takes king. He's king for three months. He's only king for three months because when, when Necho comes back from Assyria, back to his place, he takes him and— kidnaps him back to, to Egypt, says, you're coming with me. Sorry, I'm not doing it. And he puts his brother in place, Eliakim, who becomes and renames him Jehoiakim. And he's supposed to rule under the rule of Necho. So he's, so he's in place. Now, here's the thing about both of these sons. They're horrible. They're wicked. They, they, they take all the reform that dad had done. All the reform. they spent all those years watching Dad make all these really hard decisions to pull the people back. They've watched the entirety of their people come together under God, and they start worshiping false idols. They start lending their ears to Babylon and then to Egypt. It just becomes mess after mess after mess after mess. Now, all of that history is to tell you that most scholars believe that Habakkuk is written kind of 612 to 587. And the reason 587 is because 586 is when Babylon finally comes in and crushes Judah entirely. And Habakkuk writes about that. And so Habakkuk is writing these questions. The, the, the also, what's worth noting in this book is that most scholars believe that this isn't written in one time period. That chapter one is written, and then some time passes, then chapter two, and then some time passes, and chapter three is written. We don't know exactly when, we don't know exactly how, but it makes sense for the way that he's talking about, it, and we'll get into that as we go into the book. But the reason why it's important for us to know this is here's Habakkuk. He's been living through all of this. He lived through Josiah's reign, he saw it finally come. As a prophet, he finally saw God doing what God was saying he was gonna do, only to have it repeat itself, like he'd heard about Hezekiah and Joash, and Asa, and all the other kings, that whenever reform happened, it came back to this. And here's Hezekiah, or here's here's, um, here's Habakkuk, and he's frustrated. He's frustrated with his people. He's frustrated with the people of God. He's like looking around going, this is them? This is what, what God's people are, and this is the first complaint he brings to God. He's saying, how in the world can you turn a blind eye to the fact that your children, your people, are so horrible? That's the first question he comes with. And he does that not because he's like, man, it's, it's tough. I, I mean, Eliakim or, or Jehoiakim's been horrible and everything's in a terrible place. No, it's because he's seen it over and over and over again. They haven't had a day since Solomon's reign. And they've been just year after year after year of wicked rule, of false idols, of, of disastrous falling, falling other gods. It has just been horrible. And so Habakkuk is frustrated with his people. Like many of you today are probably frustrated with the church. I like, mean, how, how, how can you do this? And when we, look at, when we look at the church, when we look at these things, we go, man, this doesn't make sense. God, you have, these are your people and we, we get feisty and, and, and probably sin in our feistiness and our emotions come up or our facts get in place and we, we say, look what they're doing here and look at this and we can't, we can't compartmentalize it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it makes us look at God and go, God, how can you let this happen? Are you a good God or are you not? And so Habakkuk is written in that landscape. So when we get to his complaining, when we get to his frustrations, and we get to his understanding, he's in the middle of Babylon on the rise, of, of Assyria and Egypt on the decline, and Judah sitting in the middle, following their own selves, making stupid decision after stupid decision after stupid decision, destroying every bit of reform over and over and over again. Imagine again, just for a second, if for some reason, all of America repented. I mean, every government, every single thing, in saw this reform. And for Shoot, eighteen years. You watched your country, your, your your fellow people. There wasn't a coworker that didn't submit themselves to God's work. Every single person was submitted to that. Imagine how hard that would be to see that pulled from your fingers, to see that ripped back from you. We can't even imagine a country that is that submitted to God. Let alone imagine all of that happening and everyone doing that and so quickly with another king just flipping the switch and running from God all of a sudden and going to Baals and all these other false idols. Guys, it's incredibly infuriating. And, and that's what he's doing. Uh, if you want to read about um, Habakkuk, you, again, like I said, 612, 587. Also 2 Kings 22 and 23 and Second Chronicles 34 through 36. Those are where you can kind of find the story of Josiah, kind of most likely the time period when Habakkuk is written. So this is what Habakkuk's looking at. And he's incredibly honest, guys and he's frustrated with God. He's, he's, what he sees in, in facts and feels in emotion completely don't line up with what he knows about the character of God. He says, you are this good. He even says, you are infinite. aren't you of infinite ways? He's actually calling into question God's character in this book. I'm telling you guys, this is a fantastic book for us to be in at this time period. We had no idea that we'd be stepping into this during this time period, but this is what God has for us as a church. You know it's interesting if you just follow the timeline out from Habakkuk. Uh, Twenty-three years after uh, um, Jehoiakim takes place, Babylon finally destroys Israel in five eighty-six, and then, and then forty-eight years after that, Babylon's destroyed by the Persian emperor. Now, why that's important is that God tells that He's tells Habakkuk He's raising Babylon up to punish the people of God. And then Habakkuk has a question about that and says, well, those people are way worse than these people. And he says, don't worry, I'll have my justice on those people as well. So we know with pretty good certainty that, that Habakkuk was alive on 586. We know that, we, we, we're pretty sure that he saw Babylon crush Israel, or pr- crush Judah. But we're pretty sure he didn't see Persia crush Babylon. And then 100 years after that, we get to Malachi, and then there's the 400 years of silence that brings us to up to basically 5 B.C., When Jesus is born. And so this book sits kind of right before that pivotal time of us coming into the New Testament and seeing God speak and do all these incredible things. And so much time has passed. You know, you are sitting today and you might be frustrated with God because for the last year something's been happening. For the last two years something's happened. Look at this, 1,500 years of waiting for something only to see it taken from you. Year after year after year. We, we see so many purposes in this book. One of, one of the beautiful purposes is that we can, we're, we're called to trust in the purposes of God. We're, we're, called to, we're called to trust in him despite the confusing perceptions of precisely what we see is going on around us which is what Habakkuk is asking about. We're, we're commanded to trust him in this. Habakkuk was faced with a situation where his systematic theology didn't line up with what he was seeing in God at that moment. How often does that happen to you and I? We make a, a, a theology, we make a theology based on kind of our understanding into God's word. And then we, we wrestle because those collide with God and what we see happening on over and over again. I wrote it this way in my notes. There really isn't anything else quite like this in all the prophets. Habakkuk, Habakkuk doesn't actually speak to anyone. His prophecy is the only prophet that actually just has a conversation with God that's recorded for us. But, but Habakkuk begins with as much feistiness and what seems like defiance as we find anywhere else in the scriptures. And yet God graciously moves his soul from protest to praise, which should be an encouragement to those honest enough to admit to the fact that our faith has been and will be tripped up as we look at the facts and emotions throughout our lives. My hope, guys, my hope is that as we dig into this book and we peer deeper into the character of God, we will see the Lord is not only at work, But he is joyfully communing with us, listening, answering, and sovereign over all. So, the question, why does so much bad happen, may still be your question. You may still be asking that. But my hope is at the end, even when you ask that, you will still move to worship and praise of God for all that we understand and all that we don't understand. So, what do we do with emotions and facts? The fact that What happens when our emotions aren't lining up with what we believe the character of God? Or what happens when our facts aren't lining up with the character of God? What do we trust? Who do we trust? Do we trust our emotions or do we trust our facts? What what do we trust? Because our emotions could be 100% right. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad. Like those things are in the scripture. We can see it. We could be right and justified in those things. The facts could be 100% true based on what we know. But, What if we just trusted in the character of God? When we look at these, we align our when we look at the character of God, we align our emotions and our facts to the understanding of who God is. See, I say it this way in my notes. A matured faith trusts humbly and persistently in God's character in spite of what we see in front of us. Someone who is mature can understand that no matter what we see in front of us, no matter how long it takes, no matter what, what's going on around us, no matter how long we get stuck at home or no matter how long this sickness goes on or no matter how long our financial struggles go or no matter how long our marriage struggles go, we can still look at the fact that no matter how true our emotions are, no matter how true our facts are, we don't have the whole picture and God's character is still true in spite of everything we see. A matured faith, Trust humbly and persistently on God's character. And the same faith, the other thing that comes with this faith, this same faith will cause cause you to worship and praise God no matter your understanding of his establishing will. When When we submit ourselves to this, even if we don't like it, even if we don't like his answer, which you see Habakkuk doesn't like his answer, when we have that mature faith, it brings us to a place of worship and praise. When you, when you allow the Lord, when you wrestle honestly with the Lord, guys, I'm telling you right now, I cannot wait to give you permission. I was going to give you today. Start wrestling with the Lord. Push into him. Be honest with the Lord. We're going to talk so much about that next week. But when you wrestle with the Lord and you, 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 he responds because he's faithful, he's good, and he's listening. Even when he responds in a way that we don't understand or we don't get because we are finite, we are created, we worship him. That's our posture. That's what we're supposed to do. See, Habakkuk, Habakkuk's name could mean embrace, to embrace something, right? So maybe we we just need to embrace God through the emotions and the facts that are in front of us. Stop getting bogged down on what we see today. Because I can tell you right now, the people in Hezekiah's day were probably like, yes, finally, this is happening. I can guarantee Habakkuk was probably all excited about what was happening with Josiah's reign. It's like, yes, reform, everything's happening. They're all like, finally, it's going to be that place of peace. And now we just got to see how we're going to figure out how to deal with the Babylonians and Assyrians and Egypt and all that stuff. Okay, great. And I can guarantee you, it was like in that moment going, yes, it's happening. Only to watch it ripped from his hands. And every single person, every single prophet, every single person in the scripture of time, every time there was a king that, that, that starts with, and he had wicked reign, and he was evil in the sight of God, as it says over and over and over again in Kings and Chronicles. I guarantee there are people of God and they're going, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? How how is your will being accomplished in this? Think of Joseph. Did you think Joseph at one point went, wait a minute, second God, I know you're with me, but why are you doing this? It wasn't until he zoomed out and saw years later that the fact that God did with, with Joseph 18 years of prison and all these wrongfully things so that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people's lives could be saved, including his family. How does that work? And he's outside of our time. We only have the history or the time behind us to understand our facts. Everything we're learning today is new. We don't have tomorrow. You know, this may seem a bit <laughs> sick, but about 150,000 people die every single day is the average in our world. It's 150,000 people that wake up with the intention of having calendar events that they plan on keeping. I don't, I don't mean this to be dark or, or cynical, but my, my point is we don't know tomorrow. We have no idea. Tomorrow is not assured to us. God knows. He's, he's in control. He's not lost his, his hands. He's not like, oh man, the technology went beyond what I could handle. I just, I just thought I could keep these people in place. God knows and he is sovereign. He's in control. He knows tomorrow. So even if we have the best facts up to today, we still don't know what those fa- how those facts will change tomorrow because more information will come in. But God does. We will be exceptionally wiser tomorrow. And the only one through all this time period, through all these things, through the wicked reign and the evil in the sight of God and the, and the good in the sight of the Lord, the only one that didn't change in that was God. God is not changing. So at the end of the day, our questions of how can a God be so good, it's not that the questions in it themselves are bad. In fact, I think we have permission from David and Habakkuk and Job to ask these questions, to wrestle with the Lord of these. But in all of those people, you see them all do the same thing after wrestling with the Lord. They give praise to God. Whether they understand it, whether they got what they liked or they didn't, they always worship God. And that's what I think Habakkuk shows us. So we're going to see all kinds of things in the study. We're going to see how we are to be honest with God. We're going, to see, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what it means to wait on God. How do we actually wait on the Lord? That's a, a language that we always say, but very few of us wait. We're going, to, we're going to talk about what it means to listen to God or the fact that God is listening to us. Like, have you ever stopped to think that God is actually hearing your prayers? See, many of us have been in a room where we're praying and we're like, God, I I feel like you're here and you're near and you're hearing everything. And many of us have been in that same room where we feel like we're talking to the walls. But God doesn't change. My hope is that no matter what you hear from this time, my prayer is that all of you will not only at the end of this book, but for the rest of your life, every day, say with Habakkuk, I will rejoice in the Lord. See, in fact, I'm going to challenge you guys this. I'm going to challenge you guys in this way. Okay, the end of the book, the end of Habakkuk, he says, after all of his conversations, after all of his wrestlings, he comes to chapter three, verse 18. It's the second to last verse of the book. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. My challenge to you, my encouragement, my plea with you would be that you say that every single day, multiple times a day. If you need to write it down, some of you need to get tattoos of this on your arms to remind you to say this. Say, I will rejoice in the Lord today. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Will you rejoice in the Lord? Even if his answer is, I'm at work, but you'll be long gone before you ever see the fruition of it. Even if his answer is, you know what? You're right, it's horrible, but I need this to happen because there's some of my people that I need to discipline in this time. Even if his answer is something we don't like, can we come to a spot and say, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What would it be like for you to say that every single day? So I'm challenging you, church. Every day. Every day. Put this, write this down on a card. Put it somewhere in front of you that you can. Be, you will be disrupted by it every single day. That you need to stop and do it. Any moment you find yourself's emotions kind of getting welled up, I want you to look at this and say, but I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in his salvation, in the God of my salvation. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What would it look like for us to just talk that over us, the way that, that David talks to his heart? Too many of us listen to our heart. you got to kind of speak to our hearts sometimes because our hearts and our emotions can really send us away. What would it look like for you to say this over and over again? This is what we're going to do in this book. I think it's an incredibly timely book. Honestly, I admitted to the, the staff and the pastors, I was like, man, I— I knew it was going to be a little bit of a difficult book as it was. I wasn't expecting it to line up with everything we're going through, but man, God is good. He is so faithful to speak to us, and this is just proof to, to us pastors that many of us need to be reminded of his character, of his goodness, despite what we see with our emotions and the facts in front of us in every bit of life. How can a God allow bad things that's good? Well, hopefully we'll have that answer for that, and much more through this book. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you work in us. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, I, I, I admit, like, when I look at the, the failures and the shortcomings of, of your people over and over and over again through history, God, it just it makes me realize two things. One is that um, the Scriptures are true. Why would, why would anyone put all the shortcomings of the people in the face of everyone to see over and over and over again if they were trying to fake how good a God was? What it shows us over and over again, even in David's life and all these lives, that your grace and your mercy abounds. It's greater than anything of our shortcomings. That's the reason why a man like David could be called a man after God's own heart, because of your grace and your forgiveness. God, there are so many hard things for so many different people in our body that they're going through so many different things. They're just treacherous and painful and hard. And people are wrestling with you, or some, my fear is, aren't wrestling with you. Some have run. They've, they've hid from you. They've, they've, they've pulled back from you. God, I pray that you'd bring them back to the table. I pray that you'd bring them back into that conversation. I pray that we'd wrestle with you, God. And I pray at the end, God, you'd be glorified and that we would say, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in the Lord. God, I pray that that is something that just is not only having to be spoken over heart, but it's truly the posture with which we live because, God, your character abounds because you are a good God, in spite of what we see. You are a good God. Despite what tomorrow brings, you are a good God. No matter how hard our life is, you are a good God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all you are and all you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.